Church of Christ presents Angels Among Us, the sermon by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, December 11th, 2022. For this, our third Sunday of Advent, Joy Sunday, we are coming back to the story of Mary, where we were last week. Last week, we heard the story of the Annunciation in the Gospel of Luke, the visit of the angel Gabriel to Mary, an ordinary teen living in a low-profile sort of place, to announce that God had regarded her, had favored her, and that she was soon to carry God's own child. We considered the courage of her responses, her pause to ponder, her willingness to question what made no sense to her, and then, only then, giving consent. I invited all of us to consider the interruptions to our lives that might hold within them messages from the divine for us. I invited us to keep alert for those messengers who are all around us, inviting us to participate in the ongoing creation of that beloved community that will outlast empires. Already we have seen that many of our cultural images of Mary are incomplete. Outside of our Protestant world, the Christian world is replete with images of Mary in the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church all over the world. She is given as a model for discipleship. We see her in art and poetry, in painting and sculpture and song, and of course, in devotional prayer. Far be it from me coming from outside to cast aspersions on anyone else's devotion, any pathway toward understanding of the divine. And from outside, looking into that, from the Protestant world, where we almost never speak about Mary, she has too often been drained of all personality. She's characterized by an insipid sweetness as I say, especially to those of us outside the Catholic world or the Orthodox world looking in. It's hard to understand. Yeah. Among mm-hmm. some Christian traditions, she has been placed on a pedestal and offered as the model of the perfect woman, the ideal, literally impossible for other women to follow because she is both a mother and perpetually a virgin. That's a hard act to try to live up to. (laughs) She is praised as being gentle, meek, demure, merely obedient. And she is portrayed with a mild expression. If her face is not turned in total absorbed adoration of her child, which as a mother of sons, I can tell you, is perfectly, perfectly good way to look, But if she is not in that moment of absorbed adoration of her beloved child, her face is gently turned away, her eyes demurely lowered. Perhaps we are meant to infer that she is pondering in her heart all that she has experienced. But I'm afraid we are meant to infer nothing other than that she is quiet and obedient and nothing much to be afraid of. I remember talking about some images that we were looking at in a seminary class 
with a classmate of mine who was at that time a nun, and she told me that that image of Mary demurely looking down and away was something that was impressed upon them when they were in novitiate, the novitiate, and it was called captivity of the eyes. I've never seen it referenced anywhere else, so I'm not, I only have that one nun's word to go on, but in her experience, she was taught that one of the ways she could be most holy was by not engaging with the world. Perhaps that is a, a holy path for some, but as a model for most, it seems lacking. If the courage of Mary's yes was not enough to break open that rather innocuous image for us, I hope that this week's continuation of her story will feed our hope-hungry hearts something much more nourishing. In today's text, we see Mary transformed from recipient of a sacred message to bearer of God's message to others. If we take our preconceived images of meek, blue-cloaked Mary out of our eyes, perhaps we can see her in a new way. Bold, filled up with angelic energy and unafraid, a true model of discipleship. The first thing Mary did after she gave the angel her yes was to rush from her northern village of Nazareth across 80 to 100, probably fairly dangerous miles to the hill country of Judea in the south, to the home of her kinswoman, Elizabeth. Which always makes me ask, why? Why did she do that? We can make a guess that Luke included this episode in his nativity because he had a story to tell about the relationship between John and Jesus, about how their two lives and their messages were intertwined but not equal, how even while the two were in the womb, it was clear which one's ministry was going to require and command commitment. But what are the motivations inside the story? What makes the story work? What prompts Mary to act? Why does a newly pregnant, not yet married woman, in all likelihood quite a young woman, why would she rush away from home for a three-month visit with her kinswoman, 90 miles away, across terrain that is not easy to, to cross? Sometimes we read into the text and we assume that Mary was frightened of the response to her unique pregnancy that she would receive in her hometown and that she fled to her cousins to escape the scandal. It is true that Jewish law forbade sex outside of both marriage and the period of betrothal that Mary and Joseph were in. And the penalty that we find in the text is the very harsh one of stoning. But there is actually no historical evidence that that penalty was ever carried out. Mary was indeed vulnerable, but the peril the threat of divorce and disgrace with all of its negative connotations for a woman in that time and place, that's part of Matthew's nativity story, not Luke's. Even in Matthew, even before Joseph receives his own angelic visitation in the dream, he had determined to treat Mary with compassion, to quote, put her away quietly so as not to shame her. It's possible that Luke's first audience would have assumed scandal and threat, but it certainly isn't explicit in Luke's text. 
it isn't important to what Luke wants to tell us about Mary. Instead, we hear simply that Mary went to Elizabeth's. The angel had announced to her not only her own pregnancy, but also Elizabeth's. Maybe Mary wanted to go and support Elizabeth, who was way past the time of childbearing. Perhaps she simply wanted to go and rejoice, because rejoicing and joy plays a big part in what came next. At Mary's very first words, Elizabeth, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and her child leapt for joy in her womb. Elizabeth turns and pours words of blessing and joy over Mary. And this is one way in which Mary's discipleship might be a model for us. When we, like Mary, hear a message from God, we can go with haste and find the relationship, the community where we will be seen, where our faith, our trust in God will be recognized. In community, we can both receive the blessing we need to carry on, and we can offer blessing to others. That may, in fact, be the very definition of community, of church. For instance, when our little mission and social justice committee comes to the congregation as a whole and asks for approval to move forward, to participate in work, to participate in advocacy work, when we ask for approval to speak on behalf of peacemaking in Palestine, Israel, or justice making at our southern border, or seeking justice in the Philippines, the committee is not only looking for approval, we are also seeking recognition that the desire to participate in that advocacy is born out of trust in God. The committee comes seeking approval, but also the blessing and prayer of the congregation. That first burst of courage that allowed Mary to offer her consent was watered by Elizabeth's words. In the same way, the first burst of clarity and courage that any of us has when we see a new mission requires the blessing of the congregation. We come to each other to have our courage watered and enhanced so that we can turn and be messengers. Because once Mary received the blessing of Elizabeth, she was able to respond with the words we recognize as the Magnificat, words so bold words with such subversive cultural, socioeconomic, and political implications that throughout Christian history, poor and oppressed people have identified with them and adopted them as their own. Oscar Romero, priest and martyr, drew a comparison between Mary and the poor and powerless people in his community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who was executed by the Nazis, called the Magnificat the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. While revolutionaries, the poor and the oppressed, have loved Mary and clung to the wild hope of her song, people in power have viewed the Magnificat as dangerous, as words that in the, right, in the wrong hands might upend power structures. There are suggestions that in British-ruled India and in Guatemala, 
public recitation of the Magnificat was prohibited by the government. In Argentina during the Dirty War, the mothers of disappeared children plastered the capital city with the words of the Magnificat. I'm not sure whether it is true that the military junta banned all public displays of the song. It may or may not have happened that way, but it has passed into lore that the government opposed those words because those words are powerful. The Magnificat provided a level of hope that oppressive governments find quite dangerous in the wrong hands. As Reverend Debbie Thomas says, too much hope is precisely what we are called to cultivate and proclaim. The Messiah is almost here, Mary tells us, and the promise of his realm can change everything. The world is filled with unjust systems, oppressive hierarchies, and arrogant leadership, toward whom a new Magnificat is needed, a new dream of justice and peace. The world is also full of messengers announcing words of God's favor and regard, angels whose message, if we pause to listen, can fill us with the courage to turn and become messengers ourselves. This Christmas, what does your Magnificat sound like? How is God magnified through your unique perspective and vision? Where has life brought you? What have you seen uniquely in your job or your role in your family or your volunteering, your role in your neighborhood? What have you seen that the world needs to hear? What words have you found to express the radical revolutionary hope that the Messiah that you carry? As we draw closer to our celebration of the mystery of Christmas, I hope you know and believe that there are indeed angels among us bearing messages of hope and courage. I hope you will take to heart the truth that there are people around you hungry for the message that you have, the message of challenge and justice and hope and joy. I close with Jen Richardson's blessing poem titled, A Blessing Called Sanctuary. You hardly knew how hungry you were to be gathered in, to receive the welcome that invited you to enter entirely. Nothing of you found foreign or strange, nothing of your life that you were asked to leave behind or to carry in silence or in shame. Tentative steps became settling in, leaning into the blessing that enfolded you, in the circle that stunned you with its unimagined grace. You began to breathe again, to move without fear, to speak without abandon the words you carried in your bones that echoed in your being. You learned to sing. But the deal with this blessing is that it will not leave you alone will not let you linger in safety, in stasis. The time will come when this blessing will ask you to leave, not because it has tired of you, but because it desires for you to become sanctuary, to become the sanctuary that you have found, to speak the word into the world, to tell what you have heard with your own ears 
and seen with your own eyes, to tell what you have known in your own heart, that you are beloved, precious child of God, beautiful to behold, and you are welcome and more than welcome, that every system set up in this world to hold some as less precious than others is a system that does not belong in God's world. Go out into the world with your mouth full of good words, angelic and unafraid. Amen. Listen, listen, listen.